Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. Now, I'm not joined today in the podcast studio slash my basement by my usual podcast host, Gabe, because he's off chasing red balloons in his Cessna 172 Skyhawk. But luckily, I am joined instead by returning podcast guest, Will Satron. Well, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You probably remember him from our excellent podcast episode we did on atomic alcohol, where we tasted and sampled 10 different types of alcohol that for some reason has nuclear themes in it, whether it's the name or the history. Uh, people really liked that episode, and uh, I appreciated Will lending his keen taste buds to that particular episode. Not only do I get to listen to that episode again every once in a while, but we work together, so we see each other on a daily basis. So it's exciting to have you back on the show in that capacity. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, that was uh, that was a particularly fun episode. Episode. And I mean, you know, uh, going through all those uh, beers and wines, it was um, it was a tough job, but, uh, you know, somebody has to do it. So in this episode, we're going to continue what we call our mini nuke series, where we talk about a smaller slice of pop culture that has nuclear components. So not all of our episodes end up being three hours long. Uh, think of it more like a hit single instead of a whole album uh, that's gone platinum or in our case, sometimes plutonium. <laughs> For this episode, we are going to try out something a little bit new. We're going to talk about music about nuclear war, specifically a song that many people, even those that do speak German, perhaps don't know has a fascinating connection to nukes. 99 Luke Balloons, or the English version, 99 Red Balloons. And given the recent news about the slow death of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty between the United States and Russia, we will uh, talk about this episode about why 99 Luft Balloons actually might be a bit of a dirge lamenting this development. By the way, the podcast is now on Spotify. I figured that is a little bit relevant since we are talking here about nukes and music. Uh, you can also find the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Music soundcloud tune in youtube pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts we'll get it there so anyone who's listening to the show on spotify for the first time uh welcome will let's talk about 99 loop balloons you listened to this song growing up a bit in norway and i think you mentioned that you, you took german in school so we're not going to make you sing the whole song here but kind of what was your introduction to this particular piece of interesting new german wave punk rock music yeah. Um, so l like you said, um, I'm originally from Norway. Um, I was born there uh, in 1987 and uh, I lived there until uh, 2007 when I moved to the United States. Uh, went to college, went to grad school, and now I live and work in D.C. <laughs> in middle school in Norway, uh, we were given a couple of uh, choices for languages that we wanted to learn. Um, you know, everyone had to take a, a third language in addition to Norwegian and English. German was what I landed on. So I, I started that in middle school, and I vividly remember, so this song, 99 Luftballons, um, by Nana was kind of a part of the curriculum, and I think this was in like year two of German studies, where we essentially um, and it's interesting doing this exercise because you know, like I I've looked at the English version and I've been comparing it to the German version, but at that time we took the German lyrics and we were comparing them to Norwegian, oh. and you come down with the same problem that is kind of highlighted here, right? Like if you look at the German lyrics, they're radically different from the English lyrics, and that's because like even though like the German messaging is you know very on point, it's very targeted. 
Obviously, those words, when you directly translate them into English, sound completely different, and they don't fit with the beat and the mm -hmm. rhythm of the song. The beat and the rhythm is very, very unique. Very catchy, and but very methodical. It's not something you can just replace. Exactly. So, um, so that that kind of struck me too. Just like looking at how, like, I we kind of faced that challenge between the the, the German and the Norwegian versions, and how mm. that also perpetuates in the English and, and German versions. But yeah, that that was my uh, kind of initial experience to this song. Um, I, and I vividly remember having to sing it in class. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, it's good and. Uh, who knows? Per perhaps I'll even uh, give a stab at uh, do doing maybe like one verse or something here. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I'll edit that out. Uh, we'll see how well it goes. <laughs> so this is that was good practice for you because we're going to be doing a, a similar version of it today because the nuclear history is very strong uh, with this particular song. But depending on whether it's the German or the English version, you get a really different take on the how strong the nuclear imagery is in the song itself. Released in April. 1983 uh, by Nina, N-E-N-A, in West Germany. So this is back when Germany was divided between East and West with the Allied powers, the United States and, and others uh, on the West and the Soviet Union and the and the bloc uh, on, the, on the East. This was on their album, their self-titled album, the first album for the band and the second for the lead singer, Gabriel Nina Kerner. The song, as you probably remember from your youth, was a smash success. Uh, number one in the music charts worldwide, the German version this is, in Australia, Austria, Canada, Ireland, and the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So pretty big markets there. Uh, number two hit in the United States uh, in 1984, right behind the song Jump by Van Halen. In Norway, number four uh, on the weekly rating with the, I don't know what this is, but you, maybe you do, the VG Lista. Yeah, so so VG is actually, it's it's a newspaper and it stands for Verdensgang, which is literally like the step of the world. Ah, so, okay. it's, you know, it's kind of like a uh, Billboard Top 100, yeah. right? It was it was the Wagensgang Top 20. Well, the song got on number four on that list, so that's pretty good. Uh, probably because of all those kids listening to it on the radio, right? Uh, trying to learn German. Germany's a skip and a hop away, and, and German culture has has a lot to do, uh, a lot of influence in Norway. You know, case in point, like German was it was like German, French. And Latin were like the three language choices mm. that were presented to us in public school, you know? So yeah, G German was a big deal. Makes sense. Well, so let's talk a little bit about this song's origin story, because it is a little bit interesting. If you just listen to the song, you'll mostly just you'll notice, wow, one, it's in every movie that I've ever seen. Uh, there's always <laughs> some cover of it. It's a very catchy song, but the, the origin story for this song, according to all the sources that I've seen, was that the, the band's guitarist, uh, Carlo Cargis, uh I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but but Carlo, he was attending a Rolling Stones concert in 1982 in West Berlin, not too far from the wall. And uh, the Stones, you know, during one of their songs, released hundreds of helium-filled balloons, kind of all at once. The balloons were floating away, and probably because uh, Carlo was either smoking something or inhaling helium. Or both. Or both. He had a thought. What if East German uh, military troops or, or Soviet forces... Uh, saw those balloons coming over the Berlin Wall. Like, what would their reaction be? Would they, would they freak out? Would they think that this was an incoming attack, a sign of something? Would they, whatever? Because tensions were high in this particular time. You know, what if the balloons were shot down? Uh, would it be an act of war? So he also kind of thought that they were looked like a UFO. So I think that might have also been perhaps some of the helium talking. 
but it was a pretty tense time. You know, the doomsday clock uh, was set to three minutes to midnight. And uh, as people probably know that follow this podcast, the doomsday clock is is updated by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. It's a metaphor for how close we are to the end of the world. The close midnight would be the end of the world. Three minutes, uh, you know, a lot more close and dangerous than five minutes away. This song uh, in particular has been covered by a number of different bands. Uh, one I want to mention is uh, another punk band, Goldfinger, uh, which Gabe, our usual podcast host, said that it was his party anthem for most of high school. But let's talk about the song proper. So the format for this episode, it's a little bit new, so please provide some feedback on the episode because we're trying to figure out how to make this work. If we want to do future episodes about songs, it will intro the episode by talking about the lyrics and the story of the song itself, uh, both the German and the English versions. We will bridge into covering the nuclear connections, the context of when it came out, and some of the themes it portrays. And then we'll wrap it up with some outro discussion topics and recommendations before we fade out and get on with our day. Why don't you start us out with the the German lyrics and in the music video? It's pretty interesting. What is the story that it's trying to tell here in the German lyric version? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what's really interesting about this song is that the word nuclear is not mentioned once uh, in either the German version or in the English version. And so this, this kind of became a nuclear protest song, um, sort of by accident, if you will. Um, so it's it's talking about so the song starts out talking again about these uh, balloons that get released up into the air. Um, they show up on the radar screen of a given military power. Um, they send up ninety nine fighter jets to go find out and see what's going on. Uh, people thought that they were a UFO from from outer space. Mm-hmm. Um, so general orders up his fighter squadron, they sound the alarm, and then they get to the, the point on their radar where like the, the target is supposedly at, and they find that there's, there's nothing there. Just, just, <laughs> um, there's some, just some balloons. <laughs> just some balloons. Uh, but I guess uh, the fighter pilots kind of think they're a little bit like Captain Kirk here. <laughs> That's actually used yep. verbatim in the song. think they're Captain Kirk and they start shooting at these balloons. But this is where the really interesting aspect of the song, it starts talking about escalation control without using that word escalation Mm -hmm. control. So they're shooting down these balloons and the neighboring countries, right? The bordering countries uh, can see that there's like, you know, there's, there's gunfire going on, right? Like there's, you know, there, there's planes are shooting down these balloons. There's essentially this like big skirmish in the sky. And they're like, well, what's going on here? Like, maybe they're they're coming under attack. They don't really know. So they're like, well, better safe than sorry, right? So they they're inflating the threat. They're inflating the threat. So they they step it up a notch. They kind of join in the fray. They start firing, and then you know one thing leads to another, and the song ends with you know like the entire world is gone, right? Like we're you know we're in a, a state of absolute devastation by the end end of the song. And, uh, and I think that's where they, the real, like, nuclear themes come in. It's not just, you know, like, if you, if you think of all the major wars that we've had in the past, right? World War I, World War II, the Napoleonic Wars, right? There are victors, there are peace treaties. Everything is kind of normalized. Reparations are paid out and, you know, give it, you know, a decade, two, three, things get back to normal. That is not the case here. 
And that is the strongest illusion to nuclear war, the total annihilation, everything is gone, right? Because there's nothing left. They specifically say, Creeks uh, ministers, war ministers <laughs> are no more, like the people that the, the initiated the war. So it's really, it's this indication that uh, society as we knew it before doesn't exist anymore. And I think that is what really gripped people in the 1980s that made this kind of a, a song that spoke to the nuclear threats everybody was perceiving at the time. And of course, it's ironic because those threats are still there today, just not in the same context. Mm -hmm. But we don't talk about them anymore. Yeah, they, they, they especially mentioned in the song 99 years of war. So it doesn't really sound a lot like a nuclear conflict because those probably wouldn't last 99 <laughs> minutes. Uh, yeah. let alone uh, 99 years. So this is what I'm going to read here is the literal translation of German. So it's not meant to be uh, poetic. It's not meant to be something you could you could sing and have the same rhythm. Uh, but what I have here is, is it ends with 99 years of war left no room for victors. There are no more war ministers, nor any fighter jets. Today, I'm making my rounds see the world lying in ruin. Uh Quite an ending to it. What most of it is kind of a catchy beat song. It's one of those strong contrasts between what they're talking about versus the just if you just listen to the you don't speak German and you're just like oh this is great. Yeah. So there, there's this one uh, segment here, and I've, I've received a, a number of requests via Twitter <laughs> and social media to to actually take a stab at uh, singing this in German to prove my chops here. So this is uh, I'll I'll, t I'll take a stab at it here. Do you want me, do you want me to give you a beat? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I got this. I think I got right, this. Here so we go. 99 Jäger, jeden war ein großen Krieger, hielten sich für Captain Kirk. Es gab ein großes Feuerwerk, die Nachbarn haben ich gesagt und fühlten sich gleich angemacht. Dabei schloss um mein Horizont auf 99 Luftballon. Excellent. <laughs> I, I think I'll pay 99 cents to, to Nina to buy the rights to sing that. <laughs> and here's what the legend is about why there is an English version today. Uh, a radio DJ on the station K-Rock, uh, which is a station that I grew up with in Los Angeles that played a lot of rock and roll. They liked the German version. They played it on the, the air and everyone loved it. But the band really wanted then, they were told, have an English version and this will be even a bigger hit. They had trouble matching the English lyrics from the direct translations from German to the very technical and quirky rhythm of the German styling. So they asked for help. Uh, the producer asked a friend they knew that was in town, Kevin McLee, who is an Irish keyboarder and songwriter who didn't speak any German, but he got his friend to help try and match up similar words uh, that were to the beat by, quote, focusing on the sounds that the lyrics were making. So Nina initially loved the result, and they recorded the English version pretty soon after it. In this particular English version, first of all, they changed the name of it to 99 Red Balloons, because 99 Red Balloons sounds a lot like uh, 99 Luftballons. So yeah, Luftballons. 99 Red Balloons keeps that rhythm going. And so these, these 99 balloons are all kind of left re released one by one uh, by the main character of this song. They go to a toy shop, and they have a little bit of money, and they buy some balloons. They let them go. Uh, they don't say in the song where they're getting the helium from, but I'm not going to get too super critical about that. Uh, they release these balloons, and the inflatables are detected by a faulty early warning system. They refer to it as a bug in the system that detects an incoming something. Back at base, box in the software, flash the message. 
And then this confusion results in a panic, kind of similar to the version, the German version. There is a little bit more indication that this is an accidental global thermonuclear war. Because the way this song ends here is, It's all over, I'm standing pretty, in this dust that was a city. If I could find a souvenir just to prove the world was here. And here is a red balloon. I think is a pretty powerful ending for a song that's mostly, you know, very catchy. And then it just ends with that, uh, which is a pretty strong piece here. But the other elements that kind of indicates this is a stronger nuclear uh, theme. You know, they mention a lot of things like red alerts. They mention bugs in the software. The rest of the, the thing kind of goes about. They talk a lot about the president being on the line. Uh, super high-tech fighter jets that <laughs> the Captain Kirk reference is still made there. I'm glad they kept that one uh, <laughs> translated there. But then another line that's pretty good here is they talk about how not only is everyone a Captain Kirk, but they've received orders to identify, to clarify, to classify, to scramble in the summer sky. Whoever did that lyric, I like that one pretty good. So let's talk about a little bit of the controversy and the differences between the English and the German versions. So in March 1984, pretty soon after they released uh, the, the English version, the band's keyboardist and song co-writer, uh, Uwe Frogenkrog Peterson, sorry about that, uh, Uwe, uh, he said, quote, We made a mistake there. I think the song loses something in translation and even sounds silly. In another 1984 interview, uh, Nina herself said that they were, quote, not completely satisfied with the English version since it was, quote, too blatant for a group not wishing to be seen as a protest band. But in a 2017 interview she did with an Australian television station, it became known as an anti-war protest song, written about balloons released over the Berlin Wall. Awida never uh, announced it as an anti-war protest song, but it is in the end because it's it's a song about misunderstanding. So it kind of sounds a little bit like they had a little bit of it both ways, depending on the maybe the time period of which they were thinking. Apparently she's never sung the English version in a live concert, ever. It's always just the German version, which would make a lot of sense. But let's, uh, we're not just a, a podcast about uh, G German new wave punks music. We're here to talk about nukes. So let's get into the, the nuclear verses here. So as we alluded to here uh, earlier, this is a very dangerous time when this song was released. In, in March 1983, President Ronald Reagan accused the Soviet Union of being the focus of evil in the modern world. And he also launched his Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, or the Star Wars-style missile defense program. Basically, you know, laser, lasers in space. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> the Soviet Union shot down a Korean airliner, uh, 007, in September of 1983, which killed 269 civilians, including a U.S. congressman which uh, raised tensions pretty high, and what was later known as the Euro Missile Crisis of the late 1970s and early 80s introduced more and more of these intermediate-range U.S. Pershing missiles in U.K. and Europe to counter the Soviet SS-20 missiles along the borders. Pretty precarious time, so this is definitely the context of when this song was released and when Carlo was in West Berlin listening to the Rolling Stones and seeing balloons. You know, that was his worry, is, is how, do, how do we kind of manage this... Uh, so that he can continue to listen to the Rolling Stones and not uh, have to just listen to rocks and stones after the end of a, a nuclear conflict. Uh, Will, want to provide a little bit more here? Like this, this sounds pretty dangerous, but uh, 
you know, why, why was this happening? <laughs> why are people worried about missile deployments being moved around and why these may be different than just the usual ICBMs, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles in the silos? That- yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, this is the strongest point of connection between the context of what was going on at the time and this song in terms of nuclear uh, references, right? So your missile crisis was a really big deal and it all revolved around warning times. So as you said, you, you've got your ICBMs based in the United States, you've got your ICBMs based in the Soviet Union, the bombers and stuff. Um, there's a lot of warning time associated with these weapon systems. So with ICBMs, it takes about 30 minutes for an ICBM to get halfway across the world from the United States to the Soviet Union, or it takes uh, something like 10 hours at least uh, for bombers to make that flight as well. So you can, uh, from an early warning perspective, that is your your early warning system, uh, the radars mm-hmm. that can detect missile launches or that can see satellites, bomb- yeah. Yeah, that can see see bombers uh, com- coming at you. Um, it would give you ample time to see them and then respond. With ICBMs, it's not so much ample time. Uh, within that 30 minutes of flight time, it takes uh, several minutes for an ICBM. Once it's been launched to break through the cloud cover, that's when the satellites can see it. Then there's another 10 minutes for the radars or satellites to actually detect it, relay the information back to NORAD. And then to get the information from Norad to the president of the United States, and then when he has to make a decision, it's actually only about three to five minutes. Depending on whether or not they're awake, too, <laughs> and not Depending drunk. on whether or not they're awake, depending on not whether or not they're drunk, right? That was the case with Nixon uh, in the 70s. Anyways, even that five-minute time window that you have with ICBMs, that 30 minutes of flight time, you do not have that with short-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles. And that was the big deal of the Euro missile crisis, right? So the Soviet Union started putting in SS-20s basically on the border with Europe um, that were threatening and holding all of Europe at risk. The United States and the Europeans were obviously not pleased about this. And in the early 80s, we responded to these SS-20 deployments, not necessarily with negotiations. We kind of tried that for a time, but we started deploying missiles of our own, U.S. Pershing II missiles. Yeah, Um, NATO was particularly concerned about these SS-20s. I remember their code name for this weapon was Satan. Literally, yeah. like that was that was their code name for it. It wasn't just a, a coincidence that they were called that. Yeah, they consider them a huge existential threat. So really, like to, you know, somebody who doesn't study um, nuclear weapons, I can see how it's very easy to see like, oh, a nuke is a nuke, right? Like, you know, why mm-hmm. is there such a difference between ICBMs, quote unquote, strategic nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons? in Europe, and it boils down to this warning time. NATO and the United States was so afraid that they would not see a Soviet first strike coming, that they wouldn't have time to respond. The Soviet Union would then have the advantage in a war in that mindset that we had at the time that couldn't be allowed. And it really ratcheted up tension, strategic pressure. If you're concerned about like short alert times and short warning times, you know, what is that problem? Like what like if you start to see a little bit of an maybe, oh, it might be an incoming strike or there's a crisis that's brewing and they have the chance of using these. Why is that more of a problem than than an intercontinental attack? Right, right, right. Because it creates a lose, uh, use them or lose them dynamic. So let's say 
Um, you're, so as they, the example that they give in the song, right, the English version of the song, back at base, bugs in software flash the message, something's out there. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you are a real-time war planner and you, have, you see a message on your early warning system that is geared specifically at ballistic missiles, something's out there. The Soviets might be doing something. We know the tensions are high. Oh, they might be going in for a sneak attack. In the case of ICBMs, you have a little bit of time to figure out mm-hmm. if it's um, a false uh, false alert, right? Like that maybe there's a mistake or something's going on, and you have a little bit of time to work out the kinks in the system. With short-range, uh, medium-range ballistic missiles, you do not have that. And it creates the pressure to fire upon warning without waiting for confirmation that something's going on. A, a, a write-it-out type situation write it out type of situation so so the war planner athlete would say know that pressures were running high the soviets might be tempted to do something you have this kind of indication that they might actually be doing something you would feel extreme pressure to fire war so you wouldn't lose all of your missiles because mm-hmm. that's the thing when, with strategic war planning with nuclear weapons the enemy is always going to target your weapons first to minimize um any retaliation that you might be able to pull off so yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's it's a little convoluted, but the basic premise is it ratchets up pressure on you to use your weapons before you lose them and attack first before the Soviets can actually pull off their attack, and that is why we got the INF Treaty, which we will talk about a little bit later. Um, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis originated because the Soviet Union perceived that there was a huge missile gap with the United States. Um, so, and ironically, we thought the same thing mm-hmm. about our capabilities vis-a-vis the Soviet Union to get around that. Nikita Khrushchev was the Soviet premier at the time. He said, all right, well, like we have this missile gap. What we're going to do is put short range missiles that we have a lot of, and we're going to put them in Cuba where they can actually hit the United States. That's how we're going to solve the gap. And again, though, it was, he didn't really factor in like the change in warning time, right? You've got Cuba that's what hundred miles off the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, your warning time is like zero, and that is really what was unacceptable to Kennedy, and why he took this hard line like we are going to do whatever it takes to get them out of there. Um, so again, like those, the tensions and d- dynamics with short-range missiles were there at the time in the 1960s. We just didn't really address them as well as we did with the Euro missile crisis. Uh, just to get a little more nitpicky about the song, you know, there's they, they talk about their fact that there's 99 ministers that are meeting to decide whether or not to launch an attack. That's a pretty efficient use of time. If there's 99 <laughs> ministers meeting, they decide all of a sudden to attack a bunch of balloons before they float away. I don't know what <laughs> German efficiency this is, but that's uh, that's that's pretty good. We can't even have a cabinet meeting with twelve people that last less than five hours. Yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, Germans are known for the punctuality <laughs> and extreme efficiency. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's a, a little bit of uh, you know uh, t- taking liberties with the lyrics, right? And making and again, right? Yeah, so so yeah, you know, the song. The song in, in English, unless you tailored it, wouldn't work, right? You, you couldn't just directly translate it mm-hmm. into German. In German, they probably ran into the same problem. They had a message that they wanted to convey with their song, but then they had to tailor the words to kind of fit the, the beat and the music. Um, so that is almost certainly a liberty that they took to kind of make things work. And it's, uh, again, going to the point that you made previously, right? 99 years of war. I strongly suspect that they used years instead of the German word for seconds or minutes, hmm. just because it sounds better. 
um, then they could take artistic liberties uh, with that. Uh, the only other nitpick I have about the song is that in the German uh, lyric version, that's it's the singer is talking about a scenario where there are 99 balloons that are all up at the same time, and that causes the con- the concerns and the problems. But in the English version, the way it goes through, they say that we release these balloons. Let me see what they have here. Uh, we buy a bag of balloons with the money we got, set them free at the break of dawn, till one by one they were gone. So, which is a little bit of surprising to me that they have it that way, because if you release balloons one at a time, it, they probably are not going to bunch up together to then for be caught on an yeah. early warning system. Like if you're, I've, never, I've been to places where you release a bunch of balloons at once, and they do kind of become a big group together, but it doesn't last very long before they separate. Uh, all right, so the in the real world, back to what matters. Uh, this this particular situation with the these these weapons, these very dangerous weapons. So so how did we end up actually addressing this? Because we've we've heard a lot of we mentioned a couple times this INF treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. What was this? Uh, how did this end up happening? And what was the the ultimate goal? And in- yeah, so as we said, right, the, the Euro missile crisis really started in the late 70s, actually in the Carter administration, right? You think of mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy Carter as kind of like a, a peacenik and a, a nice guy, um, and he was by by all means, but um, he, he took a really hard line, surprisingly, with the Soviets in regards to uh, the SS-20s and uh, getting those resolved. I heard a rumor that he, uh, when he gave up his peanut farm, he said he was only going to do it if he would put a missile silo in it. <laughs> I think that, that that's what I heard. That's my rumor. That's, I think that's probably just a rumor, but yeah. hey, you never know. You never know. But anyways, yes, the Soviets were putting in SS-20s. We started putting in Pershing missiles. Tensions were ratcheting up and ratcheting up and ratcheting up. And it got to a point um, where in 1987, the United States, Ronald Reagan, and Gorbachev sat down at a table and said, this is not sustainable. Something bad is going to happen. They both recognized this problem of warning time, that the tensions were on the rise. And basically, um, Ronald Reagan and, and Mikhail Gorbachev sat down and said, if we are going to get out of this Cold War alive, we have to mm-hmm. do something to, to ratchet things down. You know, at a bare minimum, get back to the point of only being pointing each uh, ICBMs and bombers and uh, su- nuclear submarines, a.k.a. boomers. At each other, and they pulled it off. They did it. So in uh, in 1987 in Iceland, they sat down at a small farmhouse in uh, in Iceland, and it took them about a week to hammer out this deal. But they basically said, "We're going to get these missiles out of here. We're taking them off the table." The Soviets pulled out their SS-20s. We pulled out the Pershings. The treaty said. We can never reintroduce this type of weaponry again. And by that type of weaponry, they specifically identified missiles, not just ballistic missiles or Mm -hmm. cruise missiles, missiles with a range of between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers are off the table. And they were relegated to museums. If you go to the Air and Space Museum uh, in Washington, D.C., the the one that's actually on the mall, uh, right next to the, this is very crazy every time I go here, right next to the IMAX movie theater are two intermediate range ballistic missiles. They have them there. They have the SS-20 and they have the Pershing side by side. For the longest time, this was relegated to the history books, but not anymore. What has been happening recently uh, with the United States and Russia with the INF Treaty. 
What has happened with the United States and Russia in regards to the INF Treaty? So um, starting back in 2014, after um, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea, invaded eastern Ukraine, we started ratcheting up sanctions. Russia started responding to that in various ways. Uh, and one of the ways that they responded was the deployment of a cruise missile. I believe it's the 9729. They deployed this cruise missile that is INF violating. By that, the United States specifically alleged that they tested this cruise mm -hmm. missile at a range that is not allowed by the treaty. And it is capable of traveling distances uh, that are not allowed by the treaty. So the capabilities of the cruise missile directly mm -hmm. correlate to size, right? It's, it's uh, how large the fuel tank is, how large the rocket engine is in it. There, there are other factors um, at play there. But yeah, so that's, that's the allegation is that Russia has fielded this cruise missile that violates the INF treaty. We have been, we have tried now for close to five years to try to get them to admit um, that they're in violation, but then also to correct it, mm -hmm. um, right? To, to take this missile off the field. And Russia, by the way, has some actually decently valid concerns about U.S. deployments of missile systems that could be in violation of the INF Treaty that kind of set them up. And specifically, it's the Mark 41 launchers that are part of our anti-ballistic missile defense system mm. that we have in Romania and in Poland. They are arguing that these launchers that are that house interceptors for ballistic missiles, right, that we will shoot up to defend against ballistic missiles, they say you could load them up with Tomahawk cruise missiles and use them offensively to target Moscow. And that would be a big, big time violation of the treaty. And what they are arguing is basically that like you have installed these systems to quickly be able to load those up in mm. times of a, a crisis to get around the INF treaty. We see what you're doing here. That's the argument. The Trump administration just decided that enough is enough. We are pulling out of the treaty. So the United States has formally announced uh, last week, they formally announced that we are withdrawing from the treaty. Um, the Russians have six months now uh, to come back into compliance. I really, really hope that that happens, that the Russians and the United States can negotiate a solution to this issue that saves the treaty, but there's no interest in it. Yeah. John Bolton, the national security advisor, hates international treaties that restrict the United States in any way, shape, or form. Donald Trump hates, you know, treaties that restrict the United States in any way, shape, or form. So even if the treaty could be saved, they'd have no interest in it. And it's not because of the strategic benefits to it, like that we have kind of laid out pretty thoroughly in, in the last uh, five minutes of the podcast. It's, um, it's just a matter of principle. They don't like it. They want to do what they want to do. Even yeah. if they don't actually do those things, they want to be able to do those things. Yeah, and, and Will makes this uh, case in a recent uh, interview that he had on Al Jazeera. So I recommend people check that out. I will post that on our show notes here. So congrats on that. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. So one of the major themes or, or parts of this story for both the English and the German version are uh, miscalculations from, from accidents, from ideas that... Well, it's not actually a nuclear attack, but it, it seems like it is. So let's send out all the 99 high-tech fighter jets and, and start the conflict. And I, that is not something that's just a fantasy, or nor is it just something that happens in movies uh, where people are concerned about maybe an accidental uh, launch. Like the, the episode that we covered uh, with our friend Jamie Withorn, where we talked about an episode of Madam Secretary called Nightwatch, which was about...
about an accidental uh, nuclear concern, warning, alert, all that stuff. You know, these are real things that have had a lot of history to it. And we talked about it a lot on the previous podcast, but there's one I want to mention here, uh, which is, you know, Stanislav Petrov, uh, who was a, a commander at a, a radar station monitoring early warning. Uh, so, you know, whether or not the United States was about to attack uh, the Soviet Union, you know, there was a time where he was on deck. It was it was pretty late in the, like, maybe like midnight or three o'clock in the morning. And there's an, an alert that pops up that says one incoming missile. Oh, now five incoming missiles. And his job was to report that information up the chain and start the process of retaliating against the United States. But he was looking at it and he's like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are they only launching five missiles? Why aren't they launching more? If this is a first strike, we need to be seeing more of this. So he noted down and said, you know, this is not real. So I'm not going to report it up. And he decided to not to not do that. And that ended up being true. It was a uh, miscalculation of the radar satellites that were seeing cloud cover and ref- light reflecting off the clouds. And the satellites were interpreting that as missiles breaking through the cloud cover. Good that he did that. You know, it's very con- a little bit of a controversy in his home country about whether or not he followed protocol and all of that. But he was essentially known now as the man who saved the world, given that uh, he didn't report that up the chain. So those kind of false alarms uh, are real. There was another false alarm where there was a demo tape of how you run through a simulation of an attack, and it was to train. It was a training tool, and it got accidentally loaded early on, like before the weekend started, and then no one ever took the tape out. And then when someone started and ran up the system, it looked like there was incoming attacks that freaked people out. There was also an example of a computer glitch that said instead of zero incoming missiles, it changed it to like 2,000 incoming missiles. These examples have certainly have happened. And, you know, one of the ones I don't know if you feel like talking about from like, I think it was 1995 was the Norwegian rocket scare. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can dive into that. Yeah, so that was in 1995. And Boris Yeltsin was the president of the Russian Federation at the time. Um, and what's remarkable about this is this is, you know, we're, we're talking... Um, 15 years ago, right before, long before Russian-U.S. relations got as bad as they are today. This Mm -hmm. was like post-Cold War. We were literally talking, we were having conversations about Russia joining NATO, right? Like we were, things were good. But our early warning uh, satellites detected a missile launch from Norway, uh, Omdea in Norway, and uh, there's a meteorological facility there. Um, they were launching a weather satellite, and they had ironically notified the Russians beforehand that this was coming. Um, the memo just hadn't gotten up the chain of command to the right people, and then, um, they, yeah, so Russian early warning satellites detected this missile launch, and they perceived it, not necessarily, not as one missile, but several, and they were like, this is the beginning of an all-out, this could be the beginning of an all-out first strike by NATO and the Americans, and Boris Yeltsin actually busted out his equivalent of the nuclear football. That should get. Yep, the, the, exactly. Um, and for, for listeners who don't know what the nuclear football is, that is the, the computer, essentially, that the president has with him at all times. It's in a briefcase um, that he can use to launch, to authorize the codes to launch a new s- nuclear strike. And that's what Yeltsin actually had busted out and was ready to go. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty wild. Um, so some of the instances that you talked about, Tim, just very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bill Perry was Secretary of Defense uh, for one of those, and he likes to talk about that in the the tours that he's doing now to the state to kind of highlight nuclear dangers. He got a call at two o'clock in the morning about this tape that was uploaded into the system from launch officer that basically said, sir, um, launch officer NORAD, and said, you know, hey, sir, um, I'm detecting 300 incoming missiles here. 
And Bill Curry's first reaction was, oh my God, like we're all going to die. And, the, and then he was like, well, wait, why are you calling me? Should you be calling the president? And he's like, well, I'm calling you because I'm pretty, co I'm confident that this is a mistake, but I want to understand the mistake, right? But if we didn't have that individual who said, I'm confident that this is a mistake that mm -hmm. didn't identify for what it was, that would have been a serious problem. And uh, a couple years before that, Zbigniew Brzezinski, I always get his name wrong, but you know, Mika Brzezinski, uh, mm -hmm. the co-host of Morning Joe, her dad, Zbig, was um, the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter. And he got one of those calls in the middle of the night saying, sir, we are detecting a launch. They did not know it was a false alarm at the time. And he had to make the snap decision of, do I wake the president up? And he, he didn't do that. Do I call my wife and kids? Mm -hmm. And he decided not to do that because he said if indeed the strike was coming they would have gone peacefully in their sleep pretty pretty scary situations as something you always tell me is it's eventually going to happen uh these crises will continue to happen and it's all a matter of whether or not uh we are prepared for it whether or not nuclear weapons will continue to exist which present this danger and also whether or not we have certain individuals around however complicated your system is to deal with these things whether it's early warning and and escalation control and you know who can authorize what and whatever system you end up creating you know it's still sometimes about people the right people in a position whether it's it's Stanislav Petrov uh, or any of these this launch commander deciding you know I think it actually is a false alarm or it's someone who was supposed to report the fact that there was going to be a Norwegian weather launch not reporting that up the chain whether people make mistakes or they're heroes you know, we're just basically waiting for a villain here uh, to be able to be in a bad situation. Yeah. And I'll, I'll make a 15 second pitch here because this is like very uh, close to my heart. But one of the things that really bugs me is when people say like, oh, those were accidents of the past. We don't do that anymore. Like our command and control systems are so much better. Like, you know, we're going to solve this problem by making the machines better. Right. That is helping bolster the problem that is kind of you know reducing the odds that something will go wrong but at the end of the day they're still machines and that is the one universal truth in this equation that machines are fallible right so if you're taking uh, you know a system and you're bolstering it and you're making it better you're going from 85 percent efficiency to 99.9 percent .9 efficiency that means that it is a statistical certainty that it will fail one time in a thousand years right like that's what 99.9 .9 percent mm -hmm. means like one out of a thousand. That's one too many. And in a thousand years, it will happen. And so great, you know, like it might not happen. In, like that means that it might not happen in our lifetimes. It's going to happen in somebody else's lifetime. That's not the solution. The solution is to negotiate an end to these weapons. Yep. Uh, makes makes sense to me. Uh, you're channeling your inner Jonathan Shell uh, and it's coming coming through loud and clear. <laughs> We laid out here a really, you know, good connection, I think, between why this song was concerning to people who would hear it, why the person who wrote it, uh, Carlo, was worrying about whether or not something could look like a UFO and what would end up happening. But it wasn't, you know, alone by itself, this particular song. The, there's a rich history of, of music and, and nuclear protests and those kinds of uh, ways of articulating dissent. I found this on the internet, a 2015 master's thesis written by Shelley Clark, which was called Soothing the Savage Beast music in the cultural cold war and she ran through a couple different examples of 1980s pop songs uh, that revealed a, a growing cold war tension and escalating fears about nuclear war uh, some of the examples that she included here were prince's 1982 song 1999 you know the usual one you hear about partying like it's 1999 but if you actually read the lyrics uh it's pretty scary you know 
partying while announcing the apocalypse. The 1984 song Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh, you know, the whole thing is, is not only was it popular for a long time in the United Kingdom, the song itself features in music video a, a wrestling match between uh, the Soviet leader and Ronald Reagan, which is kind of fun. We can go on, on, and on, uh, but I'm going to mention this a little bit at the end when we talk about our, our, in our, our discussion topic. A bunch of people on our Facebook page also listed some of their favorite songs. Not only were there so many of these, there's a, a way that music was able to bridge and get over the Berlin Wall. So I recommend people try to get a copy of this book. The Language of Protest, Acts of Performance, Identity, and Legitimacy, which was written by Mary Lynn Gassaway Hill in 2018, because chapter four is called The Protest Language of Songs, We Shall Overcome, and 99 Loof Balloons. In this particular book chapter, uh, the author writes about how not only was this a dangerous time in the 1980s, but many concerned citizens took labor activists and songwriter Joe Hill's advice of don't mourn, organize. So groups such as the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, the European Nuclear Disarmament uh, Group got together, had massive rallies in Europe, in the United States. Examples include nearly 300,000 people demonstrating in October 1981 in West Germany uh, to protest the arms race. Five million Europeans marched against the deployment of Euro missiles in 1980, you know, right around when this song was coming out. Uh, and also, she wrote, uh, Hill wrote that there, this music was a strong way for activists to drive home their message, even when sometimes the artists themselves didn't necessarily lead that effort. Uh, and one other example here, uh, New York Times journalist Tom Wicker wrote in 1984 that nothing crosses Cold War barriers more effectively than music. That is why a group of rock-loving youngsters recently stopped Philip Jenger, who is a state secretary in West Germany chancellery. They stopped him on a Berlin street to thank him for agreeing to permit Western recordings to be legally imported and sold in East Germany. Before that... This and cassettes from the West had to be smuggled into East Germany and distributed on the black market. Jenninger said that the agreement marked one of the, quote, small steps for the two Germanys have been able to take to improve relations once as hard and cold as the Iron Curtain itself. So clearly music has had a really important place in history in terms of not only connecting East and West Berlin in terms of the, the cultural movements and things like that, but people who protested, you know, nuclear weapons, nuclear power, uh, the Cold War tensions and dangers. Songs were important to them. They were an important piece of that movement. And 99 Loop Balloons got caught up into that. I mean, maybe necessarily the band itself didn't want to be known as a protest band. Maybe there's some baggage that comes with that. But yeah, so the, the legacy of this song, the band broke up uh, not too long after this song came out in 1987. Uh, I don't know if the INF Treaty was responsible for breaking up. I don't know if you think, Will. I kind of doubt it, but, you know, it's 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 possible. <laughs> yeah, you know, the INF Treaty is negotiated and everyone's like, well, we don't need to worry about this song anymore. I don't feel any concern over intermediate range ballistic missiles. I don't need to listen to this anymore. The The lead singer has had a long solo career. She still performs, uh, but never the English version of the song. But she's still incredibly popular uh, in Europe and Japan. Carlo, the lead uh, writer for this song, died at the age of 50, having never joined another band. But the song has had a really strong impact on culture uh, in people in people's minds. Here's an example. In, in VH1 Classic, which was a television station, ran in a charity event for Hurricane Katrina relief in 2006. Viewers who made donations were allowed to choose which music videos the stations would play. One viewer donated $35,000 for the right to program an entire hour 
and requested continuous play of 99 Luftballoons music videos. The station broadcasted the videos as requested from 2 to 3 p.m. Clearly, it was important for this person, uh, and I think there is a pretty strong case to be made that this song remains popular today. But is it as popular today related to the nuclear side, or is it simply just because it's a catchy tune? Let's So let's get into that right now, our outro discussion topics. The first question I have here. Is a song still a protest song if the band says it's not a protest song, and no one who listens to it today even knows that it is a protest song or ever once was. Well, what do you think about this particular idea? It may may just be a rhetorical nonsense thing, but it is kind of interesting that the meaning behind songs potentially can drift away into something else. It can mean different things for different people. And when this song is played today on the radio, no one honks the horn and says, yeah, let's get rid of intermediate range ballistic missiles. Like, could this song be used again to rally support for the INF treaty? What do you think about all that nonsense? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting uh, it's an interesting discussion because it's music is like art. I, I, you know, actually, music is a mm-hmm. very legitimate form of form of art, and uh, you know, art is kind of in the eye of the beholder. It's it's the emo- it's about the emotions that evokes in you. It's what you see in it, right? Like the price of art, you know. It's like, well, like it's whatever people are willing to pay for something, right? All this kind of gets to you, like. A protest song, I don't think it matters. That So like Nana said, they didn't intend this to be a protest mm-hmm. song. What matters is that people seized upon it at the time, that the lyrics evoked emotions in them, that they saw certain parallels that weren't maybe weren't even supposed to be there. That is what makes a protest song in my mind. However, though, so what you're, you're kind of saying is um, if the band or the artist doesn't intend it to be a protest song and the audience doesn't really see it as a protest song then, you know, I think, yeah, like it uh, it doesn't really become a protest song in and of itself. You know, do people really do protest songs anymore? The more I've been digging into this, I think they do. Hmm. Um, but I think the people have a tendency to take songs for just, oh, that's a catchy song. I like this song. It's a catchy song. Not really listening to the lyrics. I think that is more pervasive now than it was back in the day. So um, we've got a couple of of good examples lined up of, uh, you know, like protest songs uh, that haven't really gone over the way that I think they were intended to. So on my end, uh, there's a song that came out on Eminem's most recent album called Revival. I think it came out in like 2018 and it's called Like Home. And it's with Eminem featuring Alicia Keys and you know it's not necessarily a war protest song but it's all about anti-Trumpism right it Mm. is like this is our country this is what he's doing to it there are specific references in it to Charlottesville to Heather uh, the the woman who was killed by a neo-Nazi protester ran over with his car Mm -hmm. artists are going for powerful statements these days but I don't know that you've really seen songs being used to the same effect that you saw in the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s. You think of some of the biggest, because uh, I, I mentioned earlier about these huge million-plus people. I mean, there was a million people, more than a million people, that got together in New York City to protest nuclear weapons. It, for the longest time, it was the largest ever gathering in the United States for protests until uh, the Women's March, Yeah, right after Trump's inauguration. You know, but I, what I remember... For the Women's March in Washington, D.C., you know, being there and, and and seeing everything that was kind of going on, I don't remember a lot of music. Everyone was rallying around a particular set of songs. And maybe that was simply my uh, lack of understanding of that. There were, there were songs that I know after the fact became viral hits, people singing certain verses and 
sometimes mm-hmm. people will, will attach songs uh, like Katy Perry's Firework to the idea of this kind of movement or anything like that. But I don't know. There wasn't something like that. I know for the March for Our Lives protest, which was about gun violence, musicians such as Fall Out Boy, like Miley Cyrus, they had a, they were at a concert in Washington, D.C. to end gun violence and people would sing songs there. But it was often, if I remember right, was people would sing their own already written songs that had not necessarily lyrics about that message, but were similar mood or tone and it would be something that people could rally behind you know theme songs for protests don't seem to be as strong of a thing anymore but i have no evidence to back that up i would actually be really curious to see what our listeners say this is really a little bit outside of my expertise as little as it is but it is i think an interesting thing that it's not as prevalent as it seems like it was looking back during the cold war but you know that leads to my question why aren't there more anti-nuclear weapon songs today because if you all the list of songs that we've talked about pretty much are all in the 80s 70s and 60s there haven't been a lot since then there are there are songs about gun violence and, and discrimination against african americans one of the most popular ones over the last year or so was uh this is america by childish gambino the stage name of, of actor donald glover that was a really big hit people talked about it for a really long time it was a little bit everywhere it made people think and talk about this stuff i haven't seen an equivalent relating to nuclear weapons despite the fact that movies like threads and the day after and dr strangelove are more popular today than they were years ago because of concerns and anxiety people have about Donald Trump's ability to push the quote-unquote nuclear button. Why do you think we haven't seen more explicit anti-nuclear weapon songs out there? Is it because you can't do one of those songs without being called a traitor like the Dixie Chicks were during the Iraq War? Or are nuclear weapons these days not as prevalent on people's concerns despite the anxiety? It's hard to articulate. I don't know. I, I think it's the latter, Tim. Uh, you know, I think even though um, you're, you're seeing a revival, like you just said, right, a revival of Dr. Strangelove and some old classics, right? Like there, there is a reawakening of some of the nuclear concerns that were prevalent in the 60s, 70s, 80s uh, in terms of pop culture. But it's just it's still nowhere near what mm-hmm. it used to be. Right. And so what you see in music where people will sing about what like people you know, kind of like make their cross to bear artists. That is, make their cross to bear. Um, I we're just not at the same level, and uh, I do not think that the popular dialogue is what it should be yet in terms of nuclear weapons. And that is, I think, everybody should be scared out of their minds. Hmm. I, and, and you know, it's I know that ha- because this problem has existed for over seventy years now, nuclear weapons, right? The continued existence of nuclear weapons. Time, time isn't on our side. Every year that goes by is another year where there are opportunities for mechanical failures, for accidents, for misinterpretations like they're talking about in 99 Luftballons. Um, Statistics dictate that our luck will run out. There will be nuclear use again for the first time since 1945. And what's going to happen when that eventually does happen, if we do not get rid of nuclear weapons, is anybody's guess. Is it going to be a one-off, like an accidental detonation? Is it going to be a misunderstanding, like a limited nuclear war type scenario where mm-hmm. only 50 to 100 warheads are used between um, you know, nuclear powers until people come to their senses and stop? Or is it going to lead to a spiral of escalation that literally destroys civilization as we know it? Um, I, I, 
That scares the bejesus out of me because I yeah. think of that as more of a certainty that that will happen at some point, whether it's one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, than global warming. Yeah. I think there is still an opportunity there for us to like at least halt things in their tracks in the next 10 years to avert disaster. But disaster will happen and it will happen, like you said, in 99 seconds. Um it, it scares me out of my mind. Well, much like how the general response has been to gun violence that, well, we can't really deal with guns, but let's ban violent video games or violent music. I think instead of dealing with nuclear weapons, we should probably ban balloon sales. <laughs> how easy it is without a background check for you to go in and buy helium. And by the way, I would be totally supportive of that. I think balloons are evil. I I have a phobia of balloons, full full disclosure. Oh, we should have started with that. Uh, Man, that's... Do we have another hour to talk about this? (laughs) I can't tell you why. I think something happened, like, in my childhood. Like, somebody, like, you know, some kid probably popped a balloon, like, in my ear or something at a birthday party. Like, a childhood thing. But, like, I... Yeah, if I see, like, if I'm walking down the street... This has actually happened to me before. Like, I'm walking down Connecticut Avenue... And there's a big apartment building, you know, with balloons outside, you know, like, oh, for lease. And I I will cross the street and walk on the other side. (laughs) The movie It must be particularly frightening for you, given the fact that that clown uses a red balloon as a murder weapon. Yeah, I I actually, I'm I'm a huge Stephen King fan. The 1990s Tim Curry movie was Mm -hmm. one of my favorites. Yeah. And the... This is one of the rare exceptions to like any Stephen King book that is adapted for the big screen. Mm-hmm. I thought the It movie that came out in 2017 was amazing. It's pretty um, good. So I, I know this isn't a nuclear movie, folks, but I highly recommend <laughs> listeners to go out and watch it if you haven't. I think it's awesome. Just uh, fast forward through the balloon scenes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just fast forward through the balloon scenes. Before we get into our rating here, what would your favorite nuclear war song be you know and bonus points for if people don't know that it's about nuclear weapons like so for me forever young by alphaville uh is pretty strong when it comes to uh the nuclear weapon imagery there's literally the fir- one of the first lyrics is about whether or not they're going to drop the bomb and want to remain forever young haven't come wait we're only watching the skies hoping for the best but expecting the worst are you gonna drop the bomb or not so it's one of my favorite uh, nuclear weapon songs that aren't really most people don't know is about nukes, uh, and, uh, and I include myself in that for a long time. Do you have a, a particular example of this? Because we have a bunch that people have been recommending uh, to us. But before we get into that, do you have anything? Uh, I do actually. I, I I thought about this for a while. Like I, I wasn't able to really like come up with any. I even went to Google to kind of like <laughs> just look at a list and see if something like you know I was like oh duh there's that and. Um, I picked some generic song off of that list that I was going to throw out there. Um, it was uh, Iron Maiden's uh, Two Minutes to Midnight, mm-hmm. which I'm not even that familiar with. That would have been a, that would have been a lie. But then I thought of a better one that I actually mm. genuinely like and is absolutely a song about nuclear war. And uh, it's Are you familiar with Tom Lehrer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom Lehrer. We'll all go together when we go. It's a, it's a great one. That's it's just it's it's so it's punchy. The the tune is great and his satire is amazing. And it's all about, you know, like, yeah, nuclear war. It's not going to be so bad because, you know, hey, we'll all go together <laughs> when we go. We'll all fry together when we go. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really great song. And uh, and you, you can probably uh, play that even or at least an extra on this podcast because it's on YouTube because I think the copyright licenses for it have long since expired. It came out in like 54. 
Well, if that's the case, then I'll, I'll have it. That'll, that's what we'll play it out. Uh, <laughs> the new lick off of Tom Lear's album, we'll play it out. Uh, <laughs> so here's some of the other ones that people have recommended. Our, our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast, uh, made a little mixtape for us here. Maybe I'll try to uh, put that actually onto a Spotify list on our Spotify page. or. Yeah, that's a great idea. And if you go to our YouTube page, I also have a ton of different playlists. I have things like what nuclear movies are out there. Uh, I don't know if they're supposed to be on YouTube, but I, I compiled all of them as a playlist. I also have you know famous scenes that we talk about. I'll create one called Songs uh, that will cover all these different recommendations. But people like uh, for a couple of different former guests of the show, Lucy Steigerwald, who was on our episode uh, related to the Fallout video game series. She recommended two. Uh, one called Great Atomic Power, which is a little bit of a country song by Levin Brothers, uh, which is great uh, to check that one out as well. She mentioned New Frontier by Donald Fagan, which is about partying in a fallout shelter. John Duke, who was uh, he's from Vortex Aereo Media, who was on our most recent episode before this, the Sum of All Fears episode. We He recommended what we mentioned earlier, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, uh, Two Tribes video. And that one's even particularly good because the video itself has clips. I think the song as well has clips of Protect and Survive, which is the British public service announcement videos about what to do in the event of a nuclear war. The videos themselves are terrifying, and it's crazy to think that they would put that into a music video, but it, it works pretty well. My friend Kevin, who was on our Back to the Future episode, uh, he recommended Nuclear War on the Dance Floor by Electric Six, which I'm going to recommend the DJ plays at his wedding, uh, which is upcoming. <laughs> uh, Steve recommends Rust in Peace by Megadeth. Uh, I like that one quite a bit. And then at Watchmaker42 on Twitter recommended Scorpion's Winds of Change and Two Minutes to Midnight by Iron Maiden. So I'm glad that one got in there. And <laughs> it's funny enough, I mean, maybe not funny, uh, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist has kept the clock at two minutes to midnight. So that's where we are today. That's where we are today. I'll also make one, one more pitch for a, a song that I he, did not hear on the list of songs that you mentioned. And I'm actually kind of surprised that this didn't come up. Uh, hmm. It's not inherently, you know, kind of like 99 lift balloons. There's no direct association to nuclear war. There's no reference to the word nuclear in it. But it was made famous by da, 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 Dr. Strangelove. Vera Lynn, mm -hmm. we'll meet again, right? And that was uh, it was a song that came out of World War II. Um, and it's all about, you know, like, we'll, we'll meet again, even though you've, you've passed away, like in the war, um, or you'll come back from the war, take, take your pick on which, but it was made famous by Dr. Strangelove because they play it in the, the closing scene when the nuclear bombs are going off, like all across the mm -hmm. world, they just play it in the background and it's just, um, it's powerful. It's beautiful. Um, it's, it's great. Yeah, for a while it was my ringtone. Uh, what people would call it didn't really <laughs> work that well as a ringtone, but I, I thought it was it was clever, maybe just to me. Uh, now my ringtone is the Round Ball Rock NBA on NBC theme by John Tesh. So a little bit of a different <laughs> frame of mind today. Uh, I'd also note that the, a gentleman named Sam recommended over a dozen songs uh, on the uh, Facebook page, which I'll add to the mix. But the one that's I think most uh, most pressing to talk about here is Russians Spice Sting. Uh, that's the one where he says, I hope Russia loves their children. 
So let's get into our rating system here. Uh, we like to get super critical about our rating. So we have a consistent one to five scale, but I like to tailor it uh, to the exact particular topic we're talking about here. I've crunched the numbers and let's come out to, all right, let's do one out of five hits off of a red loof balloon. You know, it's got some helium in it. Uh, one hit will give you a tiny little buzz, but five hits will let you voice your opinions in whatever high pitch you want. Uh, you know, 99 loof balloons on the wall, take one down, pass it around, that kind of thing. Will, what would you give this? Uh, one out of five hits off a red loof balloon. Uh, I'd give it a four. Uh, it's, it's a great song. It's catchy. Um, the German lyrics are way better than the English for, uh, English lyrics. And I mean, you, you can kind of just, you know, looking at this uh, awesome side-by-side -side, uh, comparison that you created um, for, for us to review for this podcast, you know, like the, you can kind of get a sense of the message and like the poetry here that they're trying to put together. And it just doesn't translate as well into English, you know, mm -hmm. like the whole, like the, the first English verse where they're talking about like, oh, we're going into a toy store and getting balloons and stuff. Like that's just... They tried to make it catchy, so and I, I give it a four out of five because yeah, they you know they it's it's not explicitly a song about nuclear war. You know they don't use the word nuclear in it, but um, it's still pretty powerful and uh, hits the spot. Yeah, in in some ways that might be more um, not necessarily meaningful, but it yeah. might have a stronger ability to motivate people to think about these things. If the words are just like you know nuclear this, global thermonuclear war, uh, all this, this and that, it may just become a little bit of a parody song. Uh, yeah. One of the ones I was thinking about covering on this podcast for this little mini nuke episode, uh, a song by Weird Al Yankovic, uh, which is about uh, nuclear war during Christmas time. Because he throws out all the buzzwords and things like that here and there, uh, it's great, but, you know, it doesn't really mean much beyond kind of it being funny. And the more times you throw in phrases like, uh, you know, <laughs> this escalation control and, and red alert warnings and things like that, people will no longer maybe understand it as much. <laughs> but if you just talk about the thematic point and the dangers and the concerns and the anxiety related to that, that may be more powerful than throwing out the word you know, mushroom cloud, but I still, so I give this a 3.5. It's a little bit less than yours, mostly just because I, I think the song today, while it's catchy, you know, it's to me, it doesn't hold up. It's not a song I want to listen to a lot. It's like, I'm glad when it comes into movies, but it's not one that uh, I need to see and listen to all the time. And I think that there are, I'm saving my higher ratings for songs that we'll cover in the future that I do listen to quite a bit. I know songs like the the end of Doctor Strange Love and things like that. Thanks to everybody on our Facebook page for giving us that excellent mixtape, and I'll, I'll put that up on the internet. Uh, but Will and I also have some things to recommend to people who listen to this and enjoyed it and want to, you know, get more. Uh, one, I would recommend The Man Who Saved the World, a 2014 Danish documentary about Stanislav Petrov and the 1983 false alarm that we mentioned earlier. So check that out. It's a pretty good documentary uh, in interviews with the man himself. Uh, two, I'd recommend a song by the Canadian band Rush from 1984 called Distant Early Warning. And that one is pretty explicit in the fact that it is about early warning system failures and it is done in a way that only Rush could ever do. Uh, and finally, I would recommend people check out an album called No Nukes, The Muse Concerts 
for a non-nuclear future. This was a triple live album with songs from a concert series in Madison Square Garden in New York City from September 1979. It was concerts organized by the Musicians United for Safe Energy. So basically not nukes, uh, not nuclear power. Uh, was what their 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 message was, and it included some some really popular artists uh, that organized this, like Jackson Brown, Graham's Nash, who's from Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, Bonnie Raitt, and other performances by Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, the Doobie Brothers, James Taylor, Tom Petty. All of them got together. Sometimes they're playing some cool songs, like Bruce Springsteen is the first time ever they played their Detroit Melody songs, which is a pretty much a staple for all of their encore performances. It was the first time they got together to play that. Other artists maybe didn't play their most popular songs at the time because they were saving those for other concerts. But, you know, when we talked about Armageddon, the movie about nukes versus asteroids, you see Steve Buscemi on the mo- on the asteroid in his spacesuit chanting, no nukes, no nukes, no nukes. That's what that's from. That was the chant from the No Nukes concert. So you can get that uh, on Spotify, on Amazon, um, or you can just go on YouTube and if you search for it, people have put the songs at least from the playlist from that. Will, do you have anything to recommend to people beyond uh, the songs that you already mentioned? Not beyond the songs that I already mentioned. I would just say uh, these are actually books. Um, there is, the, I would recommend the 2020 Commission Report on uh, the nuclear attacks against the United States. Uh, it's a book by Jeffrey Lewis. And I mentioned that because it um, it goes to exactly what we talked about, right? Misunderstandings, um, you know, misinterpretations of early warning signals um, that lead to uh, a nuclear attack. So I'd, I'd highly recommend that book. Um, I'm about halfway through it right now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fiction book, right? It's like a... It, it is, it is <laughs> fiction. I'm make yes. sure that's clear. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm hoping maybe at some point we can have Jeff come on uh, the podcast and talk about what it was like writing a nuclear fiction book. Got to try to work our way up to that at some point. What else do you got? Um, and then uh, Eric Slosh's Command and Control, right? We're, we're talking about nuclear near misses, and he categorized a lot of them mm-hmm. in this amazing book. Um, and I, I, yeah, if you if you haven't read it, if you're listening to this podcast and, and you care about these issues, that's that's a must read. Uh, and if you and if you can't read, there's a documentary. Uh, I think it's on Netflix too. Uh, you can watch uh, the, just called Command and Control. Uh, that's that's pretty good too. And it's probably on audiobook as well. <laughs> yeah, great. Oh, there we go. That helps. Uh, Will, thanks so much for coming on this uh, unusual, but hopefully maybe reoccurring uh, type of, of type of show where we talk about nuclear songs. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Uh, what do you got to plug? Where can people find more of you other than sitting next to my desk? Where 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 can people find you on the internet? I'm uh, I'm prolific on Twitter, so you can follow me. Uh, the handle is pretty simple: at Will Satron. No periods, no underscore. Just W I L L S A E T R E N. Yeah, give me a follow if you're interested in uh, this kind of stuff, because I always promote interesting things and interviews and random thoughts that I might have and cat videos. Perfect. That's that's what we need in this world. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, future songs for us to cover, or what we got wrong, uh, whether it's the the history of the INF Treaty or Will's singing, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Uh, you can go on supercriticalpodcast.com. Uh, that has a lot of show resources, special features. There's a contact link there. 
Uh, we also have bonus features on our YouTube page where I put out sometimes we have, a, you know, like a B-side where it's part of a discussion that I, I edit it out, but it's still kind of interesting. Uh, and I throw those up on the YouTube page. Sometimes we play games uh, up on there as well. So check that out. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. I am on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast, and I also check an email account every once in a while, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've liked the show, if you like Will's singing, uh, go on iTunes, leave a five-star review. Uh, just tell a friend. Tell a friend, listen to the podcast, uh, and they should check it out. That always feels great when that happens, and it's a great way to, for us to grow the show. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Will Satron. And remember, if it's pop culture pop music, and radioactive. We are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve and we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together when we go. We will all go together when we go. All suffused with an incandescent glow. No one will have the endurance to collect on his insurance. Lloyds of London will be loaded when they go. We will all fry together when we fry. We'll be French fried potatoes by and by. There will be no more misery when the world is our rotisserie. Yes, we all will fry together when we fry. Down by the old maelstrom, there'll be a storm before the calm. And we will all bake together when we bake. There'll be nobody present at the wake With complete participation in that grand incineration Nearly three billion hunks of well-done steak Oh, we will all char together when we char And let there be no moaning of the bar Just sing out a tedium when you see that ICBM And the party will become as you are